everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partners who make the podcast possible, and this month that's Magura and Canyon. Magura gives riders like Lert Bruni, Finals, and Danny Hart the braking performance that they need to race at the top level, but they also make a setup that's still incredibly powerful but much more affordable. Their four-piston MT5 brake has an unbeatable performance to price ratio, costing just €100. Euros. That's half the price of its big brother, the MT7, which I've been running for quite a while now and I'm absolutely loving. Yet the MT5 still offers nearly the same stability and power. Also, with the MT5, you get to benefit from the Magura Customize Your Brake program, which we talked about in a really popular recent podcast episode. This means that you can choose from three different lever shapes, four different rotors and four pad compounds to adjust the brake exactly to your needs and preferences when it comes to ergonomics, stability and power. If you're looking for a brake upgrade this season, then get yourself more control with Magura's MT brake range. Just head to magura.com to find out more. Canyon set out to get rid of range anxiety with their recently released and massively updated Spectral On. Featuring a 900 watt hour battery, I can vouch for the fact that you can put in some serious mileage on this thing with no worries, even using turbo mode pretty much exclusively. With a battery that big, you're probably going to assume it weighs a tonne, but with some smart engineering, the team at Canyon have managed to get the weight to around 22 kilos and it feels even lighter than that out on the trails. The bike feels playful, poppy and lively, which makes for a really fun and engaging ride. Along with that, huge battery capacity, Canyon have lengthened the reach and the rear end and slackened the head angle by a degree when compared to the last generation of the bike. That makes it a great all-rounder that's going to be capable of whatever kind of riding you want to do, be that gravity-focused, flowing single track or a bike park trip. If you want to find out more about the Spectralon, then you can check out our recent episode of the podcast with some of the team responsible for its creation. The bikes are available now and downtime listeners can get free bike guard on any Spectral On orders from now until midnight CET on the 3rd of May. All you need to do is to use the code FUN-ON-2022. That's all uppercase FUN-ON-2022 at the checkout over on canyon.com. Terms and conditions apply and you can find those in the show notes for this episode. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Merch is available if you want to support the show. That's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. If you want a copy of the first issue of our print project, Downtime EP, then you can do that over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. All the links you need for all of this are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at Downtime Podcast. It's always lovely to hear from you in the messages and the comments there. All right, mountain bike nutrition is a puzzling subject with so much information out there. In my quest to be ready for the EWS 100 in the Tweed Valley in June, I decided to talk to an expert and get my head around the basics of nutrition for both active people, which we all are, and for the race event itself. We cover our appetites and how protein intake is key to that. Jamie provides some guidance on protein and where we can find the information we need to ensure we're getting the right amount. We talk about undereating, which apparently is a common issue for many active people, myself included. And we look at the differences between male and female requirements, as well as discussing hydration, stimulants and common supplementation with some really interesting thoughts on creatine. There's heaps of useful information here. So without further ado, here's Jamie Scott. Jamie Scott, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Very good, sir. Uh, Chris, thanks for thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, let's start off with getting a little bit of background. So I guess just give us a a quick uh, overview of who you are and and what you do. 
Uh, I'm a registered nutritionist uh, down the bottom of the, the world here in New Zealand, as people will probably hear with the accent. Uh, I've been, I've got a background in sport and exercise science prior to that. Um, and probably since, uh, definitely like full time since the COVID pandemic picked off, uh, kicked off. I've been working pretty much with, well, more and more with kind of mountain bike athletes, um, DH enduro, a little bit of cross country, uh, as well. So kind of slowly but surely focusing the nutrition skills into an area that I'm really passionate about as well. Good stuff. How did your personal interest in nutrition develop? Where does that come from? Uh, it, so my first love was exercise physiology when I did my um, sports science degree. And I picked up a sports nutrition paper partway through that. Um, I just kind of thought, well, it's completely relevant for where I was kind of heading with my career at that point. It was like, I need to know this stuff. But it was just... It was a very kind of basic overview of nutrition and some elements of sports nutrition. I'm like, well, this, I need to know more. Like it was just kind of just enough to give you a little bit of a taste. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll pick up a nutrition degree alongside that. Uh, so did did that and then I eventually went on and did a um, postgraduate diploma in sports medicine and one in nutrition medicine as well. So I kind of like sat in that space of uh, strength and conditioning and, and nutrition and just by the way, I think the kind of trends or um, direction of everyone's gone, I think nu- nutrition wasn't that important when I first started 20 years ago in most people's minds. It uh-huh. was very, very secondary to people just getting fit and doing exercise. Um, but increasingly over this kind of 20-odd years now, it's almost sort of flipped where people have are more like at a, a kind of a – um, general public level, I think there's more interest in the nutrition than there is the physical activity. I mean, obviously the two are, are both important and they're kind of hand and glove type type things. But um, yeah, it's, it's been kind of interesting how my kind of career flipped where it was nutrition was the tack on, but now nutrition is kind of the dominant player in what I do. Um, and my um, business that I run is a like, self-employed person, uh, athletic and nutrition. That kind of that's built on the foundation of we will start if you were to say to come to me as a as a mountain biker and wanting to develop i'd say okay we're going to start with your nutrition first okay and then build into the training which is a little bit different from i think what a lot of coaches in that area do where they start with the training and then tackle the nutrition second yeah yeah but i guess and as we will come to i suspect that the training part is hard to do without the nutrition in place so i guess it makes sense yeah totally um i mean that yeah that, as I said before, they, um, they they go kind of hand in hand with each other. So it's kind of very difficult to kind of tease tease them apart. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, if you're going to be if you're going to be pushing your body hard, you need some fuel on the tank. So it's probably best to start there. Yeah, and why why the sort of focus towards the mountain bike side of things? Is that something that you're particularly passionate about yourself as a as a sport or a hobby or a racer or whatever? Or is it just kind yeah? Of oh, like, about- like, well, let, let's set the record straight. I'm not a racer by any stretch of imagination. <laughs> I work with them, but I'm not one. Not one myself. Uh, I've always, uh, I've just probably like a lot of people, like a lot of Kiwi kids my age, have been on a bicycle since about age four. So they've been an enormous part of my life and something that I'm incredibly impa- passionate about. Uh, I did back in the day when mountain bikes were complete rubbish. Uh, I did race cross country, but at, at that point it was still very much kind of marathon type cross country races, yeah. not the Olympic format that you see now. Uh, the Dabbled in a bit of road cycling. My from a 
career perspective, I guess my high performance pinnacle so far was I was involved with the New Zealand track cycling um, team for a while, just on a kind of a, with a peripheral sprint squad. But uh-huh. I worked with them for a number of years and, and up to kind of international uh, representative levels. So. You're working with athletes like Joe Nation and Katie Winton now, which a lot of the audience will know through the podcast and through the... Yeah, yeah so that was um, like a kind of, as bikes have got better, I've kind of circled back around and, and gone from like a um, middle-aged roadie back into gravity-based <laughs> mountain biking. So like going through the process of learning how to ride a bike again and, and that sort of environment, but through that, Got to know um, Joe Nation first first up and kind of offered him some advice, take it or leave it type of thing if you, you want. And um, he ran with it and then by Joe met Katie and did a little bit of work with her as well. So. Good stuff. So, yeah, super familiar with uh, with the sport. And I think a lot of the listeners will know I've been training for the EWS 100 in the Tweed Valley, which is getting very close now. I think we're about six or seven weeks away. Uh, been training for the last, well, probably since guess kind of october time last year um and progress has been up and down for various different reasons and mm. i think one of the one of the reasons actually and also one of the biggest missing pieces of the puzzle for me is really understanding the nutrition side of things and i guess mm. i'd kind of split that down into two main elements there's nutrition in general for someone who's an active individual so you're you're riding a bit you're training maybe as well on top of that but i think any any mountain biker is to some extent active um so there's the nutrition to support an active lifestyle but then there's also the the nutrition of the the race week or the race event mm. itself so i guess we should start with that like that ongoing nutrition for active people piece and i i think there's often a bit of a tension there for for many people they want to get stronger and fitter but they probably also want to see weight drop off or yeah. you know lose a bit of fat or whatever it happens to be I guess give us some thoughts from your side on how you would approach that puzzle and that that kind of daily ongoing solid nutrition to support what we want from our bodies. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're 100% right in that the vast majority of people at at that kind of just kind of active type level and maybe they kind of do a little bit of recreational racing, they are very, they're often very kind of conscious of you know, their own body weight or body composition and, you know, cyclists and mountain bikers in general, their weight, weight weenies at heart or have, have been at some point. So, yeah. you know, whether it's the biker on them, on themselves. And there is that temptation, I think, when you first get into it of going, well, if I, you know, I start doing more activity and eating less food, then I'm going to be this fit, live, superhuman racing machine. And it's like, <laughs> Um, that gets people in trouble really, really quickly. More often than not, because even at even at kind of that baseline level, before you factor in the activity, a lot of people are, are under eating, and okay. that might come as a bit of a shock because we're all kind of conditioned to thinking that everyone's eating far too much food. Um, and, and I guess the easy way of teasing it out is that. Uh, there's you've got to make the distinction between are you getting enough uh, total calories, which you know some people are. They're just by virtue of the fact that they just eat so much food, they're probably overloading their body with a, a lot of calories. Versus are, within those calories, are you getting enough of the specific nutrients that actually allows your body to perform well as a healthy human being, let alone uh-huh. a healthy human being trying to um, engage in some performance. 
one of the the big areas that has made it a lot easier for me, and I, I still kind of feel it's a little bit of a relatively recent change in nutrition history, and it's still very misunderstood or not well understood by the general public, is the the split that needs to take place between what we call, say, your protein energy, which you know, protein energy being all your kind of protein foods, your meats, dairies, um, some of the plant-based proteins uh, as well, and strangely enough, the non-protein energy, which is your kind of fats and carbohydrates. And they, they have, whilst there's a little bit of overlap there, in very simplistic terms, they have quite separate roles. And okay. if you look at what a lot of people are uh, eating, when I, when I particularly when I first sit down with them, I will see that they may have a tendency towards overdoing the non-protein energy side of it. And I know there's still there's a lot of fear around carbohydrate in this kind of day and age, but I probably still see people overeating fat more than anything else. Okay. And and not have the ability to burn it off if they're not very, very active. But they undereat on the protein side of it. And so you kind of have if you if you can imagine almost like a, a hybrid engine type situation where one is kind of overloaded and you can never possibly get through enough fuel, but then the other one is is not up to up to spec. Uh-huh. Uh, and that can cause cause problems primarily because the protein side of it dictates so many of the downstream consequences for the the non-protein side of things so okay um, proteins are very very much a structural building block for our body i think most people are familiar with the fact that we need protein for muscles and we need protein for, for bones but it's the amino acids that we derive from the protein that we eat are also um, very important for our immune system they're very uh, regulatory in terms of um, all sorts of pathways within our body, but particularly like hormones and neurotransmitters. So like everything from top to bottom and you know, just about every single system in the body has a protein component to it, which is kind of controlling the fuel management, I guess, of, of the other side. So if you if you underdo one, you're never really able to optimize um, the other. Okay. And critically within that, there is a there's a... Uh, framework and it's called the protein leverage hypothesis and what that kind of says in in really simplistic terms is that most of our appetite that we feel on a day-to-day basis is tagged to the protein side of our nutrition so that's the it's not the only thing that we have an appetite for we have several appetites but that's probably the primary one and so when you get hungry that's you know again being very very simplistic here that's basically your body saying like Hey Chris, could you go out and eat some protein for me, please? I need the amino acids and, and everything else that travels with that. If you then go out and eat a meal that's very dilute in protein, it doesn't contain a lot of protein, and that's fairly typical in most modern diets. You take in all of that energy. Maybe you can burn it off, but maybe you have to store it. But then within an hour or two hours, you're kind of hungry again, and so like, oh, okay, well I, I only ate lunch two hours ago and I'm already hungry. Okay, well, I'll go and have something else and then I'll go and have something else. And that's just your, the sign that your body's constantly hunting okay. for the amount of amino acids that, that it needs. I always give a, a probably a fairly relatable example for most people and that is if you wake up in the morning and you have a small bowl of some sort of breakfast cereal and then I ask them how long does that um, – how, how long does the satiety, so how long does the appetite suppressing of uh, from that cereal last for? And they'll be like, oh, 
an hour, hour and a half, and you're, you're hungry again. You have a bowl of wheat bix and like one hour later, it's like I can do another one. So whereas if you have eggs for breakfast, like a very protein-dense food, and go, okay, when do you get hungry again? I'd be like, oh, it'll be, it'll be lunchtime. So there's this recognition that having that higher protein meal pushes your appetite out and, and down the line. So it just shows that that protein is actually regulating the system very, very well. The, the daily consequence of that is that if you are underdoing that protein, which a lot of people either do in totality or do in terms of their distribution across the day, which we can, we can chat about as well. Mm-hmm. If they're underdoing that protein, they, they're never really satisfying their appetite. And so they're always eating a little bit here and a little bit there. And you get to the end of the day and you're starving and you've got your face in the fridge and you're cutting huge doorstops of cheese and like all of that <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, and then that's, that's where it's really easy to overdo the calories side of things and eating fuel that you might not necessarily be able to, to burn off. Yeah. So when, when we're talking about general nutrition and the basics and the foundations, I will always generally start with let's get your protein energy balance correct first and then see what that does to your appetite and your energy levels. And then we've, we've got more of a chance to readjust some of the other things. And a little bit better balance. Whereas if we ignore that and go, oh, you're probably getting enough, which is you know, nutrition of of the old days where we just assumed everyone ate enough protein, then you f- you find it really tricky to nail someone's energy balance down, and because they're just constantly driven by their appetite. And so many things yeah. affect their appetite too, Chris. It's like you know, um, if you're under stress, you get hungry, or your appetite might be suppressed. If you're doing a lot of exercise or not exercising, that can alter your appetite. Like sleep has a major part in your appetite. So unless you kind of get the key building block of appetite sorted first at the foundation level, it gets so much harder to adjust everything down down the line from there. Okay. So what's the is there a recognized sort of guidance on the amount of protein someone needs? Yeah, well there is. And I think particularly on the sports nutrition side of it, that's getting a little bit better. Uh, again, historically, and people still do this, and, and I guess all, all roads lead to Rome, you can probably still get there in the end. But historically, what we would have done is use some sort of table or algorithm to calculate what your estimated calorie intake might be, and then we would take a percentage of that. Here in New Zealand, the standard percentages have been around about kind of 15%, maybe up to 25% under the Ministry of Health guidelines. But generally, they'll say 15% is enough protein. That's all, all that you need. But it gets tricky when, when you are playing with percentages because if someone is over, uh, sorry, is under eating those calories by a long way or overeating those calories by a long way, 15% of a thousand is quite a bit different from 15% to two and a half thousand calories. Yeah. So it, where sports nutrition has gone and has probably led the way a little bit more than some of the kind of more generalized nutrition that we've focused on in the past is to start gauging things based on, um, things like your body weight, uh, activity levels with your male, female, so on and so on and so forth. And so now we, we kind of play with grams per kilogram um, of all of the three main macronutrients, so carbohydrate, protein, and, and fat. And that will generally sit within a range. So specifically for the protein side of things, there's over the, I guess, probably the past 20 odd years that you know I've been in practice, I've seen it go from the classic 0.8 grams per kg and maybe 
you know, if you're active, one gram per kilogram. So for someone like myself, that would be uh, 85 grams of protein that is kind of recommended. Whereas it's almost sort of year by year as more studies come out and better studies get done, that protein recommendation has kind of chipped up. And if you kind of aggregated the the higher end recommendations with the lower end recommendations and clustered them all together, I my reading is that it would fall somewhere between about 1.5 grams per kg up to about 2.5 grams of kg per kg and you'll sit in that range. Uh-huh. And then it's just it's individual tinkering at that point. Um, mm-hmm. norm, normally, say, if, I, if I'm working with someone, I'll start at two. I'll just go bang in the middle and go, let's start you at two grams per kilogram and we can titrate that up and down based on yeah. how you're responding. Do we need to – do you feel a little bit better on some more or – do you need a little bit less so we can make room for other stuff? Just play around with it from there. Yeah, interesting. And is there is there a kind of a relatively easy way or a, a kind of good resource for getting access to the information to work that out for yourself? Because obviously you've got to go through kind of what you're eating in the day, probably weigh some stuff, I guess, to work out how much of it you're eating, but then also to look up somewhere like how many grams of protein is that weight of meat going to be giving me? Yeah, um, I mean, there's there's definitely food tables uh, out there. I know that um, New Zealand has the New Zealand food composition tables. I'm sure the UK has very similar stuff and everything's all online now. So if you need to kind of figure out how much protein is specifically in a given amount of chicken or meat or eggs or whatever it happens to be, that's you can kind of go down that pathway. There's, I mean, there's numerous apps out now that, you know, some some are better than others, but they'll kind of probably ballpark you fairly close for the for the most part. Things like Chronometer and My Fitness Pal is probably not not too bad as a readily accessible one for for most people. But I guess, um, and this is you know, I'm I'm a nutritionist and this is what I do for a job, so take it a, as you will. But I will probably still shout out and say, if you're serious about doing this and want to get good quality information, just go. Straight to get a coach. Otherwise, yeah. you can you'll get lost really, really fast. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you probably know as well as I do, Chris, that nutrition is a rabbit hole, and <laughs> yeah. you end up in all sorts of places. You know, trying to find some good information, and you're suddenly like, "Oh, do I need to do keto, or should I be vegan, or should I do this, or should I do <laughs> do that?" And unless you unless you have that kind of trained background, it gets really, really difficult to decipher. Like, is this appropriate for me in my context? Yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Fair comment. And like I said to you before we started, it's something I've definitely learned more about and got increasingly kind of puzzled over over the last few years. And I still don't feel that I'm anywhere close to having it sorted. And I think protein intake is certainly something that I've been under on, and I have increased that to some extent. And I've been using mm. like a a protein shake kind of thing post training as well to help boost that up because it's actually pretty hard to get through that amount of protein in a day if you're not certainly if you're not used to you haven't been doing it it's it's quite a challenge right yeah it is very challenging and part of that challenge is because because of that satiety factor that goes with with that protein it's it's very very filling it shuts your appetite centers down and that's not just per meal it's if you're if you're eating at a relatively high rate most days, you can kind of build up this satiety where after your third, fourth, fifth meal over however many days, you're like, oh, geez, I don't think I can do this any- anymore, <laughs> which is 
it kind of puts pay to some of the old school notions that you can overeat overeat protein and there was always these fears of like can, will you overdo it can you can you eat too many steaks or something like that and i'm like okay cool let's test that theory i'm going to sit you down and i'll give you like the most delicious juiciest steak you've had in your life and you'll probably devour it i'm like cool do it again push through it like number three do it again and you're like no i can't like it's just a switch that flicks in your brain and you're like i'm i'm done yeah so when you kind of you are you kind of i guess unconditioned for bringing your protein up into those ranges um, it does take a little bit of adaptation and um yeah, it just takes a, a little bit of time to kind of get used to and easy ways around that are going to be things like using supplemental protein uh sources i mean and apart from the practicality side of it too like if you're you know you don't want to be cooking five meals a day that are eggs or chicken or whatever else so like when you're caught in the middle of your day it's post post training it's easy just to grab a high quality whey protein or, or something similar that can also be a vehicle for throw a couple of bananas in to get your carbohydrates in or, or whatever else it needs to travel in that yeah. and then it's kind of job done but a fluid okay. in there for hydration so. yeah good stuff so let's let's assume that we've kind of worked our way up to having a protein intake that gets at least close to the, around that two grams per kilo how then do we kind of look at the rest of what's in our diet from a, a carbohydrates and fats perspective? Is there some yep. guidance around that? Yeah. yeah. So like, um, I guess if we step back a little bit, like what has to sit alongside the protein? So if, we, if we're kind of going, what are we, what are we trying to achieve here at that kind of foundation level is yes, we want to get the, the protein and bear in mind too, that when we're talking about protein from whole foods, there's much more that sits within those foods than just the protein is, you know, a lot of the vitamins and minerals, your zincs and irons and whatever else predominantly in the animal proteins. So we've got this requirement for an absolute requirement for a certain level of amino acids, which we can meet. We've also obviously got an absolute requirement for vitamins and minerals. They're all kind of essential nutrients. And that's going to be spread across both whole foods from animal origin, but also whole foods from plant origin. So at the, at the fundamental level, make sure that you're main meals are built around some source of high quality protein some source of vegetable salads a little bit of fruit something along along those lines you're kind of meeting all your boxes uh, ticking all your boxes from there then at in addition to that we then have to go okay how active are you and how much fueling does that require well even if you're just lying on the couch there's a certain requirement for carbohydrate to keep your brain functioning to keep your immune system functioning well and, and so on and so forth and this is where again maybe some of the more extreme low carb diets can undo people in the medium to, to longer term because they cut their carbs too close to the bone so at a baseline level most of the recommendations would probably sit around about three grams per kilogram of carbohydrate mm -hmm. so in the same way that we went through the process with protein of kind of going okay let's let's see how much we need from a total amount let's distribute that across the day which you know we didn't kind of really um talk about but you want to you know take your 120 grams or 150 grams of protein and probably divide it into you know roughly 30 40 gram doses partitioned across evenly across the day okay and then we want to do the same thing with our carbohydrate and go like what's the total amount and then 
perhaps doesn't need to be as evenly distributed across the day, but we can kind of go, where are we going to park it? What, what meal is going to be the best meal for carrying that additional carbohydrate dense food? So things like mm-hmm. your, um, you know, rice potato, sweet potato, pasta, bread, cereals, all of those sorts of sorts of things that are classically the, the carbohydrate dense foods. How much of those do you need? Where's it going to fit in your day? And, and go from there. Once you've got that base, you understand that baseline, then we have to go, okay, how much more would you need to support just your basic level of, of activity? Three, if three is the minimum, just to not really do a whole lot, you're not going to go terribly far if we sit on that and go, okay, now you're going to try and add three hours of training or six hours of training in, into your week. That needs to yeah. needs to kind of progress up. So now you're starting to get into these additional ranges, which um, again, probably to for kind of pragmatic purposes to make it easy for a lot of people, I would go, okay, three is a minimum. Let's say your activity levels justify five. Let's see what five looks like in terms of real food. Most people are creatures of habit. They all kind of like the idea of eating loads of different stuff all of the time, but we don't. We probably cycle through three to five meals for the, for the most part. So mm-hmm. figure out what that looks like. Boom, job done. Leave it alone. That's going to be a, your foundation. If you need extra fueling over and above that, then my tendency is to then start to go, let's take a fuel for the work required approach, which is okay. let's fuel specific training sessions at the rate that they require rather than just keep trying to load more and more into your, into your foundation diets because then it just gets a nightmare to manage. Um, you know, you, you've, you know what your breakfast is, you know what your lunch and your, your dinner is for most days. You can get, get that pretty well set slight unders and overs most days as, as people will do but if then you're going okay well today's a hard day so i need seven grams per kg but tomorrow's an easy day so do i drop that down to four like it's too hard but okay. if you just have a really really good base base settings like we, and we can draw an analogy it's a mountain biking show so let's do it we can draw an analogy with suspension tuning so you want okay. a really good base setting yeah and then you can experiment plus or minus a couple of clicks here and there based on where are you riding? How are you riding? What are you doing? How long you're out for? All of those sorts of things. And nutrition's similar in that approach. So we can, we can switch from a per kg fueling approach at that kind of foundation level to a grams per, a grams per hour approach based on what the, the intensity or duration is of the, the work that you're doing. And that gets a little bit easier to manage. For okay. Most yeah, so your diet would vary day to day in in volume, I guess, based on duration of and intensity of training. Yeah, so but you'd you really kind of that additional nutrition is going to get stacked up against whatever you're doing for the day. So you know if it's a if it's a weekend and you can get out for a three hour ride and you want to and you're going to be pushing it pretty hard, you're going to be doing some intervals within that. Maybe you want to be fueling at 60 grams an hour or something along those lines. So there's 180 grams worth of fuel that you're going to need to take in. Some of that will be part of your initial, potentially some of your pre-fueling. And then you'll trickle that fuel in, you know, have some fuel before you winch up, winch up to the top, maybe have a little bit extra drop in, get to the bottom, refuel, winch back up. So you can kind of partition it across that training session and keep uh-huh. it kind of stacked within there. And then once you step outside of that training session, then you just drop back down to your your base settings. You Got pick up your next 
foundation meal whenever it kind yeah. of comes along. Okay. Well, I guess we're sort of, we're getting close to the of like race event nutrition here, aren't we? We're starting to transition from a foundation diet that goes with your ongoing work into more specific to either the event or a big training session. A, li- a little bit. Um, yeah. you, I, I always kind of view that your, to a degree, training nutrition is just a, an extension of the foundation. Um, uh-huh. And then the race is, is definitely just an extension of what you've done in training with, with some obvious exceptions, depending on what the, what the intention of a training session is. If you go back to old school days, we like we might have kicked you out the door and go, okay, Chris, go and do a three-hour ride with no fuel because you know fat adaptation and all, all of that. I think kind of the thoughts on that are starting to to shift a little bit now that that's maybe not the, not the way to go. The old old Tour de France training days yeah. of yeah, six yeah. hours in the saddle with one bottle of water. I think those days are, are kind of gone, thankfully. But um, but you you kind of extend some of your base nutrition into that training. And then certainly with race day nutrition, like, and you know, this is a, a, a golden rule for, for everyone, no matter what your sport is, do not do anything on race day that you haven't done at least several times before on, on training. Yeah. So. Cool. Before we, before we get into the specifics of the race day stuff, I guess I got a couple of additional questions around the kind of more general nutrition side of things. You've mentioned on a couple of occasions that, that kind of structure within the day, like when you consume the food throughout the day and i guess sort of in the uk fairly typical to have a a relatively small breakfast a lot of people will say oh i don't eat breakfast i can't do it or Mm. i'm i'm doing micro fasting or whatever it happens to be lunch is a bit bigger dinner tends to be the biggest meal which often kind of means you're putting the fuel in like almost like you're driving the car and then putting the fuel in yeah yeah give us give us some guidance on on a better approach to like how you structure your eating throughout the day, especially if you've got training sessions or rides within that. Yeah, so um, my, I'm a, I'm a big fan and, and certainly my approach with the clients I work with is front-loading. So that is to say that when we look at your nutrition rather than do that you know, small breakfast, medium-sized lunch, very large dinner, and then a little bit extra because you're kind of hungry or, or missed out on something during the day, is we flip that on its head as much as we can. And it's not necessarily to say that you need an enormous breakfast and a tiny dinner. This maybe just even that out a little, little bit further so that breakfast is way more substantial. Front load the system. You've just come off an overnight fast. So your, um, your body is already kind of running an energy deficit from overnight, mm-hmm. assuming that you didn't spend every waking hour right up until midnight eating. So, you know, you should have gone into a, your body should have gone into a slight energy deficit overnight. So we want to break that fast in the morning, hence breakfast, but do it fairly substantially if you you can. And particularly if you are planning to do some training later on down the line. So you want to have fairly substantial breakfast, um, maybe mid-morning, depending, again, depending on what your needs and contexts are, probably a lunch, probably a mid-afternoon. And by that point, maybe you can even taper down to a dinner. So if we are talking about individuals who want to drop a few kilograms, then maybe you stack much more of their energy earlier on in the day and then taper them back so that as they're getting closer to the evening, they actually end up eating a little bit less. And that 
fasting, micro fasting that everyone's into, that actually occurs in that overnight window, mm-hmm. which is where um, a little bit of sidetrack. But if we actually look at the research around what's called time restricted feeding, which is what the fasting is, the most effective form of that is to eat early in the day. So it's called early time restricted feeding in the research. So you eat big in the morning and then maybe you fast from four o'clock in the afternoon or six o'clock in the evening or whatever it happens to be. And so that 12 hour fast or or whatever it happens occurs in the overnight hours when you're sleeping for a good good portion of it. So that's, that's the kind of the structural approach. I'll also try and get people out of the notion, particularly... You know, when you got a lot of people who are doing kind of um, shift work and, and kind of various forms of flexible work, try and get people out of the notion of the breakfast, lunch, and dinner because I think it, my experience is it upsets people a little bit in terms of being able to figure out how and when they should eat. If they're not a big breakfast eater or can't eat breakfast because they're sleeping because they had a late shift or whatever the, the night before, they almost go, well, you know, it's no longer breakfast time, so I won't have have breakfast. What I think is a better approach is to just to go, okay, just number your meals off. So you might need five meals a day. And so you're going to have a meal one, a meal two, a meal three, a meal four, and a meal five. And they will just stack across the day as we need to and just forget the notion of what is a breakfast food or what is a lunch food. There's just food. And so you can eat whatever you, whatever you like and chop and change things around. So you know, if you're up early in the morning and you want to go and do a training session, well, you probably don't want to have a massive breakfast sitting in your stomach prior to training, but maybe you can have one of your smaller supplementary meals as meal one, but meal mm-hmm. two becomes breakfast, and then meal three might be your lunch, and meal four could be a mid-afternoon and meal five a dinner. So you can you yeah. can just shunt stuff around and ditch a lot of, as I said, ditch a lot of the some of the traditional notions of what certain foods are, what certain meals have to be and when they're timed and, and stuff like that. Okay. Interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And so under fueling, we've talked about a bit, and I guess one of the signs of that obviously is hunger and maybe hunger building towards the end of the day, like dinner's not enough to mm-hmm. to make you feel good in that respect. Are there, are there other kind of signs we should be looking out for to help people understand if they're in an under fueled state a lot of the time? Yeah, um, and I mean, I think in the short term, hunger will be one of the signs. It's if you know you start underfeeding your body, the the body's initial response is to ring all the alarm bells and go like, "Chris, go and put your face in the fridge and put some food in my mouth, will you?" But if that persists, if that like underfueling persists, then you don't really leave the body much choice other than to start making further adaptations, which might ultimately actually kill your appetite, and then okay. that that can get a little bit more tricky when you're trying to encourage people to eat again because they're like, well, I'm not hungry. Um, and so that's part of that is that appetite suppression. But anything from um, obviously low energy levels, you know, either from early in the day, you know, you should be fairly well energized, all things considered in the morning for the most part. But um, if you're running out of energy during the day, if your performance is starting to, to drop if you were, um, you know, you're used to doing six sets of intervals, but suddenly, like, you get to three or four and just blow to bits and can't sustain your power. If your perceived exertion for intervals starts to climb, that could be a sign that you are um, under fueling. A lot of people will track 
some of their metrics, things like resting heart rate that might kind of go up initially or um, heart rate variability could drop quite a bit as your, your body's starting to get um, more and more fatigued. Um, moods, obviously, uh, mood is actually a really good indicator. Someone who is you know, pretty relaxed and chilled out for the most part could suddenly start to get pretty snippy, particularly with people that they're close to and they feel that they can get away with being snippy. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so like keep an eye out on, on stuff like this. It's kind of classic hangriness that people could yeah. can get. Um, yeah, and, and it sleeps, sleep probably starts to deteriorate. So that, that either that inability to initiate good quality sleep or to stay asleep after the first hour, hour and a half or so. Um, okay. Waking up early in the morning because your blood sugar levels are dropping out. So all of those sorts of things, and you, and you can test for, you know, things like um, thyroid levels over a, you know, over a longer longer period of time. Some of your your blood work might start to go south um, a little bit. Yeah, so. and and it's not. It, is it a good idea to just kind of go ratchet straight up to these levels that we've talked about? Because I'm imagining it could be quite hard if you've been under fueling to kind of get to that level immediately. Yeah, yeah. Um, depends on the individual. Like I, I've worked with both. There are some individuals who, when you kind of go, okay, here's where you are at this point. Here's where you need to be, and they're like, okay, great. You know, yeah, they'll make the jump. Guys, bigger guys will tend to be able to do that, um, but probably more likely is that people will struggle initially to go to bridge this massive gap. So. You know, I, I might run the numbers in my head and go, okay, this is where I think you need to be, but you're a long way off that. So let's kind of, let's just take a step forward yeah, and, you know, do it meal at a time. Go, what I want you to do is we're just going to start with breakfast and we're just going to add like a little bit extra into your breakfast and go, go from there. Or it could be, you know, if you're still really struggling with appetite suppression in the morning, it could be, let's, let's go the next meal down, down the line. And yeah. just slowly ratchet up. You can run into problems, often probably more from a weight perspective than anything else. If you, if you've if you've got a body that has made a lot of adaptations to try and conserve energy through long term low energy availability, and then you suddenly start dumping a ton of calories into it, the body still is kind of in that energy conservation state. It's going, oh, fantastic, loads of calories. I'm just going to park them in storage over here because you've been starving me. So. So okay. it does take a little bit of time for people who have got really kind of deep-seated, um, low-energy availability issues. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask what sort of changes should we expect to see and or feel as we move towards and get closer to these levels that uh, are more appropriate for our level of activity? Like, are we are people likely to put on a bit of weight initially? Like, are there things that could happen that might put us off and make us think we're yeah. going the wrong way? That that's the difficulty of it. I I think because you're you're trying to balance a lot of a lot of factors. Um, and if I mean if if you take someone who's who's under eating, there's always a reason behind that. Like most people just don't starve themselves just for shits and giggles, basically. So um, so that there's there's normally a stress reason behind that. Maybe they're stressed with their career, or there's relationship stress, or something along something along those lines. And that has an impact on their sleep, and so their sleep quality is low, and it might have an impact on their 
ability to to do activity and i've seen it both ways where people are very underactive but also people become very overactive because that's their only outlet for Mm -hmm. for releasing some of the stress so when you you kind of march on in and go okay start eating x amount of food you'll always kind of have to counsel people that they are likely to see a, a negative change in their body composition before they'll see it turn positive and that is, again, just because the body has made so many adaptations at a metabolic level to counter this low energy availability that for some people, even the smallest increase in energy intake can just sort of see more of that, those calories going through to body fat storage effectively. But if you can talk them through it, be there in support, counsel them through it, you'll find um normally within three months or so that the body will kind of start to head the other way and because the body's now starting to go oh hey actually i'm not in a stressful situation i'm feeling a lot more calm and relaxed i can actually start releasing some of this energy so um it's a it's a case of setting expectations right from the from the get-go most people have expectations that you can fix decades worth of nutritional problems in 30 days because everyone runs a a 30-day diet program yeah. that's that's never going to be the never going to be the case uh, uh-huh. so it's yeah it's just slowly but surely with a lot of support and picking your time like if seriously if you've got like deep-seated under fueling issues you're not gonna like i wouldn't start to try and address those with you a week out from tweed valley like you yeah. just got you got to pick your time yeah fair comment and are there any differences in in all of this we've discussed so far are there differences between male and female in requirements or yeah, yeah, there is a little bit. Um, there's, I, I think, probably counterintuitive to a, what many women would think. They sometimes actually need a little bit more protein than what men do. Okay. Um, again, like it's very individual. Generally, what you'll find is that the older you get, the, the more protein that you'll need to kind of so to get the same effect when you're, okay. you know, when you're a young eighteen male oozing testosterone out of every pore then you know you probably don't need that much to achieve a achieve a result most of it's still being kind of driven kind of hormonally but mm-hmm. as you start to kind of age and particularly when you get you know mid-20s through to 30s and, and onwards that um hormonal response drops back down and now you're more subject to what you actually eat and, and how you actually live so uh as a middle-aged male i probably need a little bit more protein than what my 18 year old self did. And then Uh a female would probably need relatively about the same, maybe a little bit more sometimes. Um, There's males can sometimes get away with a little bit less carbohydrate overall, or they seem to respond a little bit better to some of the fasting strategies. Women tend not to. So there's like, there's, there's some differences there. Um, I know it's been a popular topic of late, some of the, the sex differences out there. I'm kind of seeing the pendulum swing back a little bit in some areas. It was like kind of this wholesale women are 100% different and, and they need yeah. a, a totally different strategy. Uh, and maybe some of the early research indicated that, but there's a little bit of research to go. Maybe the, the differences are a little bit more subtle than we perhaps thought. Okay. What about around the menstrual cycle for women? Are there any kind of changes in nutritional needs with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so 
if you if you take kind of the menstrual cycle and, and just to keep it simple and split it in half and you have the the first half being the um, follicular phase and then the second half being the the luteal phase um, with ovulation being in the middle generally a little bit more fueling will be required in the luteal phase um, and I guess again in, in being kind of very simplistic about it after ovulation the body's trying to make this, an assumption as to whether or not a pregnancy has taken place and on the off chance that it has it's trying to partition energy away from being av- being available to the female for her use and okay. actually trying to drive some of that energy towards maybe kind of making a baby yeah. um, somewhere in there so that can if if a woman is already on a little bit of a knife edge in terms of her available energy in the follicular phase she'll find that she's really underfueled in the the luteal phase so uh-huh. a little bit of extra fueling might be um, required during that time so but again i like my for for a while i was kind of deep down that rabbit hole of like oh and in, in this phase we need to do this and in that phase we need need to do that and it's as much as like I enjoy it from a geeky nutritionist perspective. Um, in a practical sense, it's really, really difficult for, you know, you're already, there's already a lot of variables in play and now you've yeah. just added another one where like on this day you need to do this, but on that day you need to need to do that. And it all just kind of gets lost in the background noise of everyone's daily daily lives. So I think it's it's a much better strategy to go, hey, look, let's just make sure that you are eating enough in totality first and foremost. And if we get that equation right, it'll normally balance out menstrual cycle, menstrual cycle fluctuations anyway, um, and then kind of keep it fairly consistent. And then where there's still potentially some small variables, we can take a look at it and go, is it just a case of, do we need to look at the in-session fueling? So when you go out and do a training session or, or a race, do we need to be a little bit more particular about where that is in that particular phase? Um, but otherwise, try and try and take as many moving parts out of it as as possible. Otherwise, it's just too yeah. complicated. It's too hard. Yeah, no fair comment. Let's let's move on then and talk a little bit about kind of maybe the run up to the race and the race itself. Yeah. What what do we change or what do we do to kind of give ourselves the best possible chance of feeling good on that race day? And I guess we've got the practice day as well, so we've got kind of two back to back big days out. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, well, first and foremost would be to try not to change too much, really, so that everything is as familiar as possible. Um, be be very mindful of the fact that you're dealing with a sport, particularly something like enduro, where it's not just the structure of the race, it's not just the number of stages which will last roughly X amount of time at whatever intensity well, you're going to be racing, so it'd be kind of pretty much kind of maximum intensity. Um, but actually go, what is the environment that you're going to be in? Are you going to be in hot weather, cold weather? You're going to be at sea level. You're going to be at altitude. Are you going to be chopping and changing between the two? You know, some of the the European alpine races, very, very big um, altitude fluctuations, very, very big temperature fluctuations. And I think I recall one of the um, EWS races in south america can't remember the specifics of it where you'd see the athletes on one of the the chairlifts and they were in their summer gear at the bottom of the chairlift and they were huddled freezing cold by the time they got to the got to the top of it so you've got this athlete 
race environment interaction. So like know what that is likely to be going in because it will dictate to a, to a really large extent what your nutrition is going to be over those practice days and, and over the, the race days. And we've already talked about, you know, things that can upset your appetite. Well, you know, one of the things that will do that will be if it's stinking hot, that can really have a big impact on um, not only what foods you're likely to crave or how much you're likely to want, but the form at which is probably going to be best to take them in. Mm-hmm. If it's Tweed Valley and it's freezing cold, you're probably going to want a little bit more in the way of solid food. So, and, and things that have you know, maybe a little bit more kind of substance to them that you know, kind of makes you feel like you've just put a bit of a, an extra lining on your stomach when you, you, you eat it. Yeah. Versus if you were doing a race in a stinking hot environment, it can actually be really difficult to not only eat the solid food, but actually digest it because of blood flow issues around cooling and, and those sorts of things. So, so first and foremost is like know what you're letting yourself in for and have a good understanding of, of what the likely options are. And as you, as you're getting into race week, you're going to have a more accurate forecast of particularly what sort of temperatures you're you're likely to be in. And then you can start planning, planning from there. Uh huh. And what, what might that look like? Let's, let's take the Tweed Valley as an example. Let's assume it's going to be a regular kind of day at that time of year, 15 degrees. Yeah. Maybe drop into 10 in the early morning and late afternoon. Yeah. Hopefully dry, dusty trails, lovely time out. (laughs) Primo. Um, So it's going to be a case of what is, what is likely going to be your race day breakfast, which you should have actually trialed on your previous race sim weekends. Yeah. Um, And I think like you've discussed with Chris Kilmer in the past, the the importance Mm -hmm. of doing those simulation weekends and, and um, knowing how, you're going to warm up and what you're going to do and when your race starts and, and everything else. So have as part of that process or is to go through and go, okay, on race day, here is my race day breakfast. Have an understanding too that sometimes what you are comfortable and able to digest as part of your everyday normal life might not necessarily be the thing that will sit well in your stomach on race day when the adrenaline's flowing, the nerves are, nerves are going and you know, you're kind of worried about what's what's coming up and struggling to to shovel food in your in your mouth. So it might have to change um, a little bit. And I'm always I tend to try and guide people as much as I can towards um, things like more rice based breakfasts for the carbohydrate, okay. mostly because a rice digests relatively easily for for most people. But two yeah. also contains a lot of carbohydrate for the amount of space that it takes up. If you okay. compare the equivalent amount of carbohydrate to say, I don't know, oats or some other cereal, like there's quite a big mass difference. Yeah. And so if you've got that kind of those pre-morning nerves and you're struggling to sit down with your big bowl of oats and can't get through it, then you potentially run the risk of underfueling. Whereas, you know, a, a couple of cans of creamy rice or, or whatever it happens to be you can often kind of get through um, much more readily. So so know what your breakfast is, is likely to be. It's It needs to be slightly higher in carbohydrate in anticipation of what's coming up. So you're still doing that kind of front-loading yep. um, type type strategy. And it's even that's probably even more important on race day because 
it's not that you're going to run out of fuel in the first stage or the second stage, but you're fueling there early in the morning so that you're um, reducing your fatigue later on in the in the day. Mm-hmm. So when you're on stage four or five for the day, like you, you want a big kind of fatigue reduction yeah. effect. There's no point in underdoing it at the start of the day. Have the wheels fall off halfway through the day because once they're off in a race scenario, they're really hard to get back on again. You're yeah. really struggling to play catch up when you fall behind. So, um, so actually, yeah, even kind of just just saying that out loud, probably as important as what you're going to have for your race day breakfast or practice day breakfast is actually probably what you had the night before as well. Okay, because that may be if you're a particularly nervous racer, that night before meal could be your really last substantial meal that you can have prior to kind of the full race day nerves kicking in so you might be a little bit more relaxed that's a chance to probably have a relatively lightish type protein don't sit down and have an enormous thick steak or something like you know (laughs) probably not going to might not do too much harm but you can sit a little bit heavy so um you know a lighter white fish type meal or something you might have uh for uh for your dinner uh again a light salad because you don't want to overload the gut with too much fiber the night before as well. You're really just trying to maximize your fuel stores and a substantial amount of whatever your preferred carbohydrate is, which means rices, pastas, potatoes, those sorts of things are going to be your general dinner meals. Then you'll get up and have whatever breakfast you're you're likely to have. Um, And then you're mapping, really kind of mapping out your day from there and go, okay, here's here's my presentation time. Here's my race starts. Here's when they're going to set me off. Here's the first estimated liaison time. Um, I'm going to start to kind of trickle in my mixture of fuels. You've got your sports drinks, you've got your bars, you've got your lollies and those sorts of things. And it's going to be the timing uh, of that per stage so that, again, you've, you've got this kind of fuel flowing in, maybe have your last little quick sugar hit just before you drop into first stage, mm-hmm. get the first stage out of the way, like get your breath back at the bottom, go, okay, cool. Where, where do I need to be next? How long have I got? Yeah. Start to start to trickle the, the fuel in. And part like um I will generally if I'm working with individuals, I'll I'll break their fueling down into roughly about thirty gram chunks. Okay. Normally a, a bottle of sports drink will be give or take thirty grams of carbohydrate, three snakes or a handful of jelly beans or something like that. Ten jelly yeah. beans or something is like thirty grams. So half a bar. Most of the bars are 50, 60 grams thereabouts. So you can start to kind of go, okay, if I'm requiring roughly about 30 grams every 30 minutes that I'm Mm -hmm. out on the course for, then you can kind of start to estimate what your day will look like and have a a good mix there. Um, Don't try and do it all on lollies. Don't try and do it all on one type of drink because, uh, again, you're – tastes will change across the day it's always probably a good idea to mix a little bit of sweet and savory have some salty chips available to you in the the day um yeah and just yeah slowly kind of plan that day out still plan for having a lunch of sorts if it's a a light wrap that again you can maybe include a little bit of protein in and and stuff like that so it's, it's really that sitting down and in the same way that you will mentally try and plan out how you will race your stages, 
you need to sit the nutrition plan alongside that as well. Okay. And that 60 grams an hour, is that kind of rider weight based? Is it intensity based? Like, or is that just a good starting point? Uh, it's, it's probably more intensity based. It's like, it's not necessarily tagged to the weight of the rider, but it would be, again, it's a good ballpark to start with, um, for depending on the, the sport, you can go way, way higher than that. Um, I recently got sent a, a piece on, uh, Vanderpol's recent win and he was at 120 odd grams an hour, which is, Whoa. yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't think that was possible that, you know, you basically digestive tract kind of topped out about 90 grams an hour, but yeah. it is trainable. You can get up there. If you're a big hard charging unit, you probably are going to need a whole lot more than that. We talked right at the start of my involvement with Joe Nation and Katie Winton, you know, two really hard charging athletes, but they're, they're very different. Obviously, okay. you know, Joe, Joe's a big, strong beast of a, a lad. He's probably going to need to be fueled closer up to the 90 grams per hour mark. Katie will probably be okay closer to the 60 gram per hour mark. It'll just depend yeah. on the on the person but that i think 60 grams is a good starting point that again you would trial in training yeah. and see if it's enough see if you can go a little bit higher so you can go 75 yeah. we'll go up to 90 see what happens uh-huh. and does that start from the start or have you already kind of got an energy store in your body from that breakfast when when does the fueling requirement start right from the you're, beginning of the ride again or? you're always trying to you're always trying to stay ahead of yeah. the curve so the night before in your breakfast is the fuel store that you're going to have in the tank that will get you through probably the first half of your day. Mm-hmm. But you you'd start to take on fuel relatively early so that the the rate of decline of your fuel stores, you're really trying to slow that, slow that down because yeah. you will get to a point. If you draw those fuel stores down really, really quickly, then at some point, the the body will go. Mm, I'm a little bit worried about the fuel tank here, and start to handbrake the system a, a little bit. And that's yeah. where you, the some of the fatigue that you might feel is not necessarily the fatigue that you are out of energy. It's just the body protecting itself and going. Mm, I'm not going to let you go as hard as what you want to go because I don't want the tank to drop drop any lower. So you are trying okay. to stay stay ahead of that. So. Yes, what you will have at dinner and breakfast will get you through the early part of the day, but also what you're starting to take in in the early part of the day is to offset the fatigue of the latter part of the day so that you can keep pushing, maintain your focus. Invariably, the thing that will cost a lot of riders is not necessarily that they've run out of muscle fuel. The muscles are still fueled and they can still push the same sort of wattage but they're starting to run out of brain fuel and they're starting to lose that focus and little mistakes creep in and, you know, they miss a breaking point or they blow a corner or something along those lines. So you you always kind of try to stay ahead of that fatigue curve as as best you can. Okay. And is there like an optimum time between finishing that pre-race or pre-practice day breakfast and then starting the ride? Uh, Again, it will probably come down to particularly on the race day itself, what your nerves might be like. Because if you are very nervous, it will have a tendency to delay gastric emptying um, a little bit as it's, it just kind of pulls that, the, the, just the nerves and adrenaline are kind of priming the muscles and priming the system. So it's naturally drawing blood flow away from the digestive tract and just slowing things down a little bit. So generally for that bigger meal, it would be 
two hours, 90 minutes or so is probably uh-huh. a good time to at least start trickling some of that that fuel in. Again, you know, it'll come down to the individual. Some individuals will sit down and they will just chomp away at a massive breakfast pre-race, no problems at all. Others yeah. might just have to kind of graze their way up to the, the start line, just slowly but surely getting getting through. But if you can roughly kind of time yourself about 90 minutes at the least for that larger meal, let that, and it should be a fairly easy digesting meal too. And again, that's why you don't want something that's too fibrous or um, you don't want like your oats full of cream and Greek yogurt and all those sorts of things because the fat that will be contained within that will actually again slow the system system down. Okay. And that's that's where you can potentially you know, start your first liaison or drop into your first stage and you suddenly like you kind of feel the stitch or you're kind of you're getting a bit of reflux. It's like, oh, you know, the breakfast hasn't moved out of your, your stomach. So just yeah. kind of be mindful of some of those digestive issues. And often quite a challenge if you've got an early start, like I think certainly last year, some of the EWS 100 lot were away at maybe eight or half eight in the morning yeah. to kind yeah. of make sure they were around before the, the pro stage started. So yeah. And, actually, and that's, that's just going to come down to like a level of organization and structure that has to accommodate that nutrition. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're due to be away at eight o'clock in the morning and you're up at, I don't know, half past five, six o'clock and you're faffing about still spannering your bike because it's not quite ready. Well, that's, that's a that's a failure of your organization so you're kind of going i like you need to make sure that everything's in its place so that on the morning of you've only got one or two things to to focus on primarily yeah. being nutrition because if you yeah. underdo that all of this training that you've done building up to to tweed it can be undone in a heartbeat because you just missed a couple of crucial meals yeah yeah so literally get up get dressed and eat yeah. basically eat. yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Any thoughts on uh, stimulants kind of throughout the, the race day, practice day, like coffee, caffeine, I don't know, guano is a maybe more natural thing yeah. that we see in well, some I mean, of the gels yeah, and stuff. Like. Caffeine's a, a natural thing. So well, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, kinda, I don't make that distinction, but um, I think it's the, the rule would be if you're a caffeine habituated person, you're probably going to need caffeine. Race day is not the time to put yourself into caffeine withdrawal. Yeah. Um, that could come and bite you later on quite badly. Sure. Um, but also, if you're not habituated to caffeine, race day is not the time to be trying it for the for the first time. So um, I would naturally tend towards making sure that people who are used to having a cup of espresso or something like that in the morning, that they're still getting that kind of 100 milligrams or so of coffee as part of their morning routine. So the body kind of feels normal. It's not getting kind of too shocked. And then there's scope for later on the race, particularly from, again, that um, fatigue minimization perspective of going maybe after lunch, particularly when we kind of go through that natural, a little bit of that natural circadian dip after lunch where you've stopped, you've maybe taken on a little bit of extra heavy fuel or something because there's been a a break in the middle of the day. Now it's two o'clock, you're a bit fatigued, you're a bit sleepy that could be the time where maybe you're asking to miss a line or, or, or something and, and wrap yourself around a tree. So, you know, it's there's a case to be made for going, are some of those legal um, stimulants um, fine for, for racing? And I, I would say absolutely yes. So there's just going to be a case of like, what form does it come in? Do you have it as, as a 
drink? Do you take it as a caffeine gel or a caffeine tablet or something yeah. along those lines? And again, that just needs that needs to be tried. Um, yeah. Some people, like I've, I've worked with races on both ends of the spectrum. Some, whether they're caffeine habituated or not, they just find that extra additional caffeine dose maybe tips them over a little bit too much. Okay. Um, it makes them too aroused and they like them maybe will push things a little bit too hard. Mm-hmm. And again, you, you know that when you're kind of dealing with kind of fa- fairly kind of narrow trails and, and tight gaps and, you know, precise braking lines that if you overcook the speed coming in, you can get, get yourself into mischief. Um, and then there are people who actually can sometimes have a negative response to caffeine, like a, a um, uh, inverse response to, to caffeine where it actually makes them sleepier. So, uh, again, it's, it's being kind of aware of some of those things. Yeah. Okay. There is a, like, you know, related to that, Chris, is that there is actually um, a little bit of research. It's not, I don't think it's super extensive, but it's certainly kind of intriguing and points in the direction that um, potentially adding some branch chain amino acids to your drink later in the day can help with that um, brain fatigue okay. and help with focus. Yeah. So there's a, there's a little bit more starting to come in and around certain amino acids and nootropics and BCAAs and all that sort of thing in terms of focus and attention. Yeah. Probably it's used in motorsport, Formula One, that sort of thing where like, you know, you've got to be really kind of zeroed in for, for long periods of time. And there's, you know, there's scope, I guess, as long as it's within the boundaries of the, the rules and it's all got the informed choice tick and it's not laced with who knows what else. So <laughs> it's, it's fair game. It's up for grabs. Yeah. Interesting. All right. What about, um, I guess we should touch on kind of sweating and electrolytes salts, basically. Yeah, There's yeah. a big risk there if that's mismanaged of, you know, cramping and all this, the stuff that comes along with that. Is there any kind of simple guidance on that side of things? Um, this is where like high hydration is a very, very special subject. And, you know, a lot of kind of bulk standards, nutritionists such as myself only have a very rudimentary understanding of like the real kind of in-depth stuff. Um, but there is a, there is a bit of a trend now towards kind of understanding what your individual salt or electrolyte balance is. Some people are naturally very salty sweaters, so they will lose they might not necessarily sweat a large volume of fluid, but within that volume that they do sweat, they'll lose a lot of um, sodium. Yep. And your average electrolyte might not be enough to to replenish that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, whilst there might be some small relation to cramping, it's probably more likely that it will lead to more um, general dehydration just because the, you know, as as you lose more of that sodium, you're not kind of really being driven to drink quite so much. You're going to lose some of your okay. thirst drive and and run into problems um, there. Just with it, again with fatigue um, and blood blood not flowing. So if, if, yeah, people kind of get a little bit too kind of too focused on the cramp side of it and miss the fact that you know, as your blood starts to lose some of its plasma volume, it thickens up and it slows down, and that's going to have a yeah. big impact on the cardiovascular output and. And so on and so forth. So, being able to maintain a really good plasma volume um, is is critical. Again, particularly in really hot environments, and particularly if you are a salty sweater. So, that might be the case for using some of these specialist 
um, products and I like Nude and Precision Hydration and some of the other um, companies out there and now do some of these like high sodium um, products that can be used in in certain environments or or used for for individuals. You can do um, hyperhydration strategies. I've I've used that fairly effectively with my riders here that I I work with, particularly some of the, the hotter races where you'll put um, say 1500 milligram uh, sodium concentration drinks into them the night before. So half a liter the night before, half a liter the morning of that will tend to pump up their plasma volume a little bit more mm-hmm. as they hold a little bit more of that, that fluid in the, in the system. Um, and just kind of, again, keeps them ahead of that dehydration curve or that kind of that fluid loss a- across the day. But um, it's, yeah, it's a very, very individual thing. Some people won't tolerate the high sodium stuff. Some people only need a little bit. So, again, it'll be one of those things that test it. Um, I think there are there's a couple of easier ways to figure out um, what your potential electrolyte needs might be. I think Precision Hydration has a tool on their website that's an easier survey yeah. to do. Um, and that will kind of, again, give you a, a rough ballpark. And then it's like, go out and test. And, and know the environment. If it's if it's a, a cold day, maybe you don't need quite so much fluid running through you. Um, your sweat losses might be slightly lower. If it's a stinking hot day, clearly going to need a need a whole lot more. So tailor that to your needs. Um, and actually, just across my desk a few days ago was whether or not to um, drink to thirst or whether you have a hydration schedule that was kind of recently tested in research and there wasn't a uh, there wasn't a massive difference between the two strategies so one was like basically you just drink when you felt like you needed to drink and the other group was given a strict um, strict schedule to to um, stick with the group in the study that had the strict schedule they maintained their fluid balance a little bit better and they maintain their power output fractionally better. I think it ended up being like okay. 10 to 15 watts slightly higher than the the other group. But to counter that, and I think the study was done with triathletes, so um, whilst the, the group that had a very um, regimented hydration schedule physiologically did better, there was no differences in terms of cramps or, or anything along those lines, but just in terms of their plasma volume and their power output, they, they did a little bit better. They had to stop and pee more, more often. And so yeah. in the, you know, in the context of a triathlon, if you're needing to stop every five minutes because you've overdone the, overdone the fluid, you're losing time. Uh-huh. But then if you apply that, um, apply that thinking to enduro, you, you don't have those constri- those constraints. Like you're not on the go the whole time. You're not yeah. going to stop and pee halfway down the down a stage, are you? It's like you know, <laughs> three, four minute stage. I'm sure you can hold on, even if your bladder's getting bounced around all over the show. So, um, it would seem if you if you apply that research into an enduro type setting, that actually having a hydration schedule to stick to might be slightly more beneficial than just kind of drinking to thirst and, and winging it across the day. Okay, interesting. And, yeah, and that could be some research in then. Yeah, so I mean that could be again, it would be very, very individual, but it could be somewhere along the lines of I don't know, four hundred to six hundred mils an hour, give or take, again based on yeah. the individual and the environment. So basically, if you're if you're if you're shooting for probably a, a bottle of water an hour, 
you're probably doing okay in terms of your fluid intake, but again, you'll need to kind of just balance that out against what's in that fluid. Is it just pure water versus does it need to be a, a, um, a light sodium electrolyte drink or does it need to be a slightly heavier sodium electrolyte drink? Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Lots to go at before we, before we finish up, just uh, interested to hear your thoughts on supplements in general. Like, is it something that you recommend? Is it very individualized? Are there sort of, are there, are there any supplements that you would kind of recommend most people take? What are your thoughts on that side? Of yeah. yeah. Um, it was, I was really, it wasn't that long ago. I was quite intrigued to hear, uh, Professor Louise Burke, who uh, was long involved with the Australian Institute of Sport and has been around for many decades in this field now, and it, the the standard line was always, you like if you if your foundation diet is right, then you shouldn't need supplements. And yeah, there's a there's a ring of truth to that. But I think like in this day and age, we need to be a little bit more pragmatic about it and go, okay, there are some gaps in most people's diets one way or another i would say probably one of the biggest gaps for certainly you know for uh, we're about to go into winter here um but and I, in the uk it's a it's an issue is things like vitamin d yeah so it's vitamin d it's reasonably difficult to get out of the diet and the amounts that would probably hold your levels up at a optimum optimum level so not only does that have a an impact on many many functions within the body uh particularly around the immune system and and um uh just to general defense and protection but there's some interesting data sitting there that would be quite specific to mountain bikers um, and that's around the vibration loading that mountain bikers are subject to when they're they're racing and the impact that that has on their immune system and it seems that a higher vitamin D status offsets some of the inflammatory responses that will occur as a result of that high vibrational loading. So there could be, you know, specific to gravity-based mountain bikers, you can mount, probably mount a relatively strong argument to go just from a pure health perspective, let's check your vitamin D status and chances are you probably need supplementation. Okay. Uh, but also just to offset some of the damage that's getting done uh, as part of riding a bike, bearing in mind yeah. too, on that vitamin D side of it, as much as you know, you can you can sometimes get the sense that you're out in the sun all day and you're like, oh, my well, vitamin D levels should be fine. But look at what we're wearing. We're generally wearing long sleeves. We're wearing full face helmets. We're like armored up from top to bottom. There's not a lot of skin getting in, uh, getting exposed on a on a daily basis. We're not out in t shirt and shorts, you know, and, and we're not in, in like like the XC guys. So. So our sun exposure is probably not sufficient to probably hold our vitamin D levels up. So that would be a okay. good one to look at. Um, creatine looks like it's pretty interesting, not only just from the training benefit side of it. And again, maybe there's um, some uh, benefit in terms of just the resilience of the muscles and bones uh, to the, the training loads and potential for, for crashing. But probably the most interesting area for creatine would be that it may mitigate some of the worst um, problems with traumatic brain injuries from crashes. Yeah. And so when you, if you are unlucky enough to kind of hit the deck and hit your head and end up with a concussion, I think most 
layperson's understanding of a concussion is that you've basically whacked your skull against, uh, whacked your brain against the side of your skull, and there's some sort of like physical trauma that's that's taken place. But in actual fact, probably a good portion of what we feel as a concussion is actually a metabolic type issue where that brain that's taken a bit of a knock, some of the localized tissues are, are having a bit of a, a runaway metabolic cascade. And it looks like creatine may arrest some or most of that metabolic cascade. Uh-huh. So you can either wait until you hit your head and then try and load the creatine in afterwards, or probably a little bit kind of more sensibly is just load it in if you're a mountain biker and go, you know, a five, six gram dose a day is cheap as chips as far as supplements go. It's a safe supplement. It's been tested up, down, and sideways. There's no side effects from it. It's legal. Doesn't make you feel funny for the most part. And if it's going to protect your skull on the unfortunate chance that you whack your head, it's probably probably well worth it. Yeah. So there, I mean there are a couple of couple of examples. Um outside of that, it's a like it's a real individualized approach. If I work with people who are vegetarian or vegan, there's gonna be some gaps. I'm like, okay, well let's let's plug the gaps. If mm-hmm. You know, if you've made a you know some sort of values based decision around what you're going to eat, cool, respect that. It's none of my business, but you're still going to have some nutritional gaps there. So let's let's plug them up with some some supplements. Um, obviously, caffeine's a good one. It's caffeine, creatine, beta alanine might, in some cases, be beneficial. But again, if if that foundation diet's not set, and yes. you know you're missing a, a you're missing some really big picture stuff there. Probably none of that's really going to be that effective in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Fair play. Well, that has been super interesting. It gives me loads to, uh, to think about and to go away and work on. So thanks so much for that. It's been, yeah, been fascinating. If people want to find out a little bit more, where's the best place for them to head to, to check out Athletica? Uh, so um, just on the, the main website would be uh, athleticanutrition.co.nz. Uh, but otherwise just on the socials, not like a kind of post fairly infrequently um, on there, but uh, on Instagram is Athletica Nutrition. Nice one. Cool. We'll stick some links in the show notes so people can find that. But yeah, thanks so much for your time. I've got a lot of work to do. Um, but yeah, it, it, that will hopefully set me up in a much better place in uh, in six or so weeks time when Sweet Valley and Jura comes around. So yeah, thanks, man. Really appreciate Pleasure. it. Pleasure. Nice one. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Jamie. I really hope you've enjoyed listening and found it useful. A massive thanks to Canyon for supporting this episode. They've just launched their awesome Spectral On, and I've been lucky enough to spend some time on one out in Italy earlier in the year and on my home trails. The range is insane and the ride's lively, engaging and really, really fun. You can check out the new Spectralon range over at canyon.com and as a downtime listener, you can get free bike guard by using the code fun-on-2022 at the checkout. That's all uppercase fun-on-2022 over at canyon.com. Terms and conditions apply and they're covered in the show notes for the episode. Also, a massive thanks to Magura for supporting this episode of the show. If you want to upgrade your braking to get incredible power and stability, along with the ability to customise the brakes to your needs, all without spending a fortune, then head over to magura.com and check out their MT5 brakes. Here's a few other links that might be useful. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch and forward slash EP if you'd like a copy of the first issue of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for now. We'll have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride.